Welcome to Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. The annual Cannabis Holiday 420 isn't what it used to be. What was once a day of countercultural actions has gone mainstream. But we recognize it nonetheless, especially since there are still big issues to tackle in cannabis policy, including the fact that upwards of 20,000 people are arrested per year for marijuana possession in Pennsylvania. For our annual 420 episode, I talked with Brian Brown, a cartoonist based in Philadelphia and the creator of the comic strip Legalization Nation, which is a syndicated documentary comic that delves into news stories related to cannabis. In our conversation, Brian talks about his own history as a consumer, including being arrested as a teen, why being a registered medical marijuana patient in Pennsylvania has radicalized him, and how his cartoons make these policy debates accessible for readers. Brian has written and illustrated several books, including the New York Times bestseller Andre the Giant, Life and Legend, and Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America, which tells the history of marijuana prohibition. You can find him online at boxbrown.com. This conversation was recorded on April 3rd. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining the podcast and being here as we acknowledge the 420 uh, and the, the annual cannabis holiday. I, I want to get into how you combined your interest in cannabis with your talent for cartooning. But before we get there, let's first talk about your journey with cannabis. You are a registered medical marijuana patient in PA. You've also been in the criminal legal system for a weed arrest. How did you get from 16-year-old kid arrested for marijuana possession to cartoonists telling the story of cannabis? Uh, that was quite a journey from those two places. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I got busted for smoking a joint at a baseball field when I was 16. Very wholesome thing, I think. Um, coming of age story. <laughs> it's as American <laughs> as apple pie. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh you know, and I got to see the legal system a little bit um, uh, from that perspective as a teenager. The first thing I noticed, which I was like furious about, was that the person I got arrested with, who was a woman, a girl, we were 16, um, got let, not as bad of punishment as I had got. And we were arrested at the same time for the same charge. She actually had an, an, an extra charge that I didn't have. Hmm. Um, and uh she you know it was very similar but like she had to pay the fine i had to pay the fine she got did not have to ever see a probation officer or anything like that interesting um i had to see a probation officer for six months um i got drug tested weekly um and you know was able to witness what it's like to be on probation in uh Union County, New Jersey, in the in the um, late '90s, um, <clears throat> and, you know, which was you know uh, kind of scary for me. I was like this like super nerdy like uh, kid, and like all the people, a lot of the kids, you know, in probation were like, um, you know, would probably kick the shit out of me if I stay saw me like <laughs> in school, you know. Um, right. <laughs> um, but you know. Um, it, and it was scary for my parents, I think, because it was like, uh, you know, if I had got, got in trouble again and during that time period, there would have been these like repercussions and all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was scary, you know, going to see a judge, um, you know, the, you know, getting, getting drug tested 
um, um, you know, that that's just like, it, you know, I was like so nervous. I remember I had to like chug water every Wednesday, like after school, like start chugging water until I got to probation. And, you know, you have to like pee in a cup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was grounded. I, you know, all it was just like this, you know, a difficult time for me as a teenager. And I remember like looking up at that. That was like the moment that broke my brain. Because I was like, why? Like, I, there's kids in my school, my high school, whatever, that got busted with like a keg last weekend. And they just like called their parents to come pick them up. Mm-hmm. And, but if I got caught with this thing, which is like less dangerous, you know, the, the whole argument that goes on in your head, you're like, it's less dangerous, like all these things, but why is it illegal? And just like, uh, I think that's when I was like, it, it kind of like made me more interested in cannabis. <laughs> getting arrested yeah. um uh so that you know that was like my first foray into like understanding the history of cannabis um and it came from like being arrested for it otherwise i probably just would have been like never even thought twice about it and just like smoked weed with parties and things like that um anyway you know fast forward a bunch of years later i started making comics um uh for probably like I worked on mini comics and stuff for like 10 years probably before I, my first book came out, um, which is a biography of Andre the Giant. And um, it ended up being a New York Times bestseller. It was like a huge hit book like that I haven't even come close to doing again. <laughs> um, uh, but we'll, it was- we'll put in a plug for, um, uh, oh shoot, the, 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 the history book, Cannabis, the illegalization of, of marijuana, I, I, yeah. I have the title in America. As I, um, I had the title written down, I just needed to find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So then, you know, the third or fourth book that I did was this book about cannabis. You know, the whole history. You know, I think like when I first started thinking about, I think a lot of people at first when you start thinking about why cannabis was made illegal, it was like, oh, you know, people in the early 1900s were kind of like ignorant. And didn't they really thought it was like hurting people and blah 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 and the reality of the situation is like it's the same thing as it ever was it was created made illegal to allow the state to kind of uh enforce power over other uh, ethnic communities basically i mean like that's like most of the story there's a lot there's other things going on too but like um, from the beginning, you know, the first laws, the first cities to make it illegal, it's like El Paso, Texas was like before any, any, st- you know, state laws, the city made it illegal and it was so they could punish Mexico, you know, they could keep Mexican people out. Right. Basically. Um, and, and so it snowballed from there. It was always like this r- racist thing. And then, you know, you look at like Nixon and, and, and the entire like, um, controlled substances act is like based on racism and and um and so like (laughs) that you know knowing knowing all of that um and then watching legalization come across the country you know i had been to like california and seen these stores and being like oh my god this is like the future like i'm you know this is (laughs) 
we're living in the past you know there's like all these stores everywhere it's so great all the weeds like really fresh you know i'm in like washington california portland and like all these weed stores are great i mean they have every kind of product stuff we don't even have on the in the east coast like all these different strains all these great things and so then uh, and then i'm watching it come across the country you know it's like colorado california and then starts starts like coming this way right yeah. and new jersey legalizes medical weed and then didn't then Pennsylvania legalizes medical weed. And I'm like, oh, wow, we're going to have like a dispensary. Like, I'm like, holy shit. I'm like reading all about it. And I'm like, oh my God, they're building a dispensary like in our neighborhood. Um, this is great. And then um, they opened up and the prices were like sky high in the beginning, like way more, like double, more more than double, like anything I'd ever paid for any amount of weed. Yeah. Um, so before and, you go before you so go on, I, I want to quote I want to quote you here from an interview I read. You told GreenState.com, "I became a Pennsylvania medical cannabis patient, and the system completely radicalized me." Yeah. Uh, so so go on, say say more yeah. about why it. So this is what happened. This is what I think happens to a lot of people. It was it's like a common story now, um, where, you know, finally I saw the prices were coming closer to what I not equal or lesser but like closer to what the illegal market had and i was like you know what if it's an extra 10 15 bucks uh it's legal you know what i mean i you know i'm like i want to be legal i want to go to the dispensary it's just i've been to these dispensaries in california it's great yeah so i get my card whatever go, go, go through that whole thing and go to the dispensary and then the first day you go in there you're wow you're like you know intoxicated <laughs> you know before you even get the weed you're intoxicated because you're like wow this is so great it's got a menu you know it's got all these different products on vapes and uh, we don't have edibles but you know you know capsules and all these different things and um first time or two you go there you're like trying everything on the menu it's kind of like when you i don't know if you ever when you were in your younger days like worked uh at a, at a restaurant or like i used to deliver pizza and stuff and it was like a grocery that. store i don't know if, right well, so like actually, so here check this i worked in the produce section at a grocery store so i, I know where you're going here go on so like we would <laughs> so like <laughs> at first you know, you're getting this food for free so you're like trying everything and then they're like great blah 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 I'll try all the food. Then after a while, you're like, I hate all this food. Like, I can't stand it. I've seen every aspect of the making it. I know where all the ingredients are. Like, I've tasted everything in the, the kitchen and everything. I, even if you gave this to me for free, I wouldn't even eat it because I hate it that much. It's like how much I'm working at this pizza place, whatever. And that kind of happens at the dispensary where you're like, all right, I tried everything on the menu. Nothing has knocked my socks off here. Um, and I paid 10, 15 bucks extra, like per product, which adds up really fast. Then you're paying an mm -hmm. extra 50 to a hundred bucks that you'd normally spend every time you're going. Um, and so that were, and then you're like, well, I'm just going to get it from the dude I used to get it from two months ago because like it's, it's cheaper. And like he, now that dude has a menu and shit and like he, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that. So uh, what happens is people go in and then 
they they get the novelty of it out of their system and then go right back to the legacy market which if it's like a place like new york or new jersey let's say right now where it's legal that's like a lot more cover for the legacy market so Mm -hmm. it's not like they're gonna just like go away on their own volition or something in the law that's like gonna make the only thing that's really gonna put the legacy market out of business is to be out if they're out sold or out competed by the legal market right it's really like basic economics like you can't sit there you can't ever and they tried this for 90 years to punish the black market you know you you know use force to force the black market to stop right running it's just not it's never been successful the only thing that's going to be able to that's going to replace that is a functioning competitive legal market where those people that are it's worth their while those people that are in the legacy market it's worth their while to be part of the legal market yeah i mean the comparison is often made to alcohol no one is um buying uh, off-label alcohol because the stuff that you can get uh in the stores is the highest quality stuff so (laughs) yes and there's tons of tons of competition and selection too it's not like You know, it's not like there's four alcohol companies anymore. Right. I mean, it, it kind of used to be that limited selection of beer and things like that. Um, and, but, but like the, you know, it's just like that too, where um, when it was when it was a limited market, um, well, you know, there wasn't as much competition. It wasn't as good. And then right. when, as more competition came in, there's way more. Like now there's like eight trillion different kinds of beers you can choose from when you go to the grocery store yeah you know that and that's just the ipas never mind yeah exactly (laughs) everyone's making ipas now yeah um well some of what you're referring to and talking about is impacted by policy and i know you live in philadelphia it's pretty clear from your cartoons that you're paying attention to what's happening with cannabis policy around the country especially in the mid-atlantic region um and like I said, some of what you're talking about, you know, we're starting to scratch the surface here about public policy and how it affects um, the market. What are your concerns right now about the direction of cannabis policy? Um, so, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, let's say, you know, when uh, Massachusetts legalized, let's say, um, they ran into, you know, they're trying to, in the East Coast, like, on the West Coast, they kind of started from a different place with mm. legalization, right? Um, in California, when they first legalized, home grow was the, uh, part and parcel of the legalization process because guess what? There was no legal weed to get anywhere else. You had to grow it yourself. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there was no like stores where, that were like, no, no, you should be able to buy it from our store. It's like, no, that you have to make it legal. You have to make home, home grow legal. You have to make growing cooperatives legal, like all that stuff has to be a thing. So in the California and a lot of the West Coast and a lot of Colorado, all of that stuff, all of those laws came from like the Prop 215 approach, which was like this medical approach that that, that um, prioritized access for patients at 
you know, and not profits, really. Mm -hmm. And then, so by the time Massachusetts legalizes in like 2015 or whenever that was, um, now there's like a bill, a, a lot of companies with a lot of money that have a lot of say in how things are going to go in in that legalization process. Yeah. And Massachusetts itself has a lot of ideas about how they want to bring in the money for this and protect people and legalize the right way and all these different things and not make the same mistakes that they made in California, you know, mm -hmm. Colorado. Meanwhile, they have the best system still, um, you know, uh, and so they, they, this is where we start seeing this extreme over-regulation in, in the adult use markets. The medical markets, the, the extreme over-regulation started like right away too, like in New Jersey, their medical market, they were the first ones to be like, this is going to be grown by five to five companies only. You're going to have to buy it from these two dispensaries that are state licensed. You know, that, that was the first like heavily regulated medical program, medical, you know, corporate program. Things changed mm -hmm. after that, you know, that changed everything because then people were like, Oh, we can legalize and make it like, not this cool legalization <laughs> that people actually want. You can make it like this thing and you can, you know, satisfy them and not piss off these people or whatever it is for whatever reason. And so you get this now uh, influence of these huge medical cannabis companies and they are able to go from state to state being like, listen, we set up this pro, we are part of this program in New Jersey. We could do it here in PA. You know, then you have the PA program, which has started out as like very few corporations running the whole system. And it's grown to now like 22 companies running the whole system, which is still nothing. And it's all like, you know, 19 or something huge corporations, which have also merged also now too. So it's shrunk mm -hmm. in that way as well. Um, and, and, you know, Florida looks like that too. And, you know, a lot of other, uh, you know, Connecticut looked like that before they legalized and they and they have legalized adult use. So when it, when, after that medical thing happened and they started legalizing for adult use, you started seeing these laws that were like made it impossible for the little guy to get into the business. Yeah. And in Massachusetts, they had to change so much of their licensing process around um, to make it more advantageous for small businesses. But even still, you know, and it's been years since, since Massachusetts legalized and even still they're just now kind of small businesses are just now kind of like coming online and, and, um, it's been dominated by, you know, uh, corporate weed for a really long time. Um, you know, it was really expensive to, you know, despite even besides the licensing part it's really expensive um and in massachusetts real estate's really expensive new jersey's going to mm -hmm. go through the same exact situation because it's like that there too where real estate's expensive as hell all over the state um and uh so you know uh and, and so there's so ends up being so much red tape uh, massachusetts and new jersey too gave the local municipalities too much power over 
who they, it basically allowed allows local municipalities to discriminate against cannabis businesses. Right. And say, you know, for whatever reason, because I'm the Republican mayor of Tom's River, New Jersey, no weed will ever come into Tom's River, New Jersey, ever. Mm-hmm. Even though we are the gateway to the beach for like tens of thousands of people. And in our town, we have a ton of liquor stores, a ton of vape shops, weed, you know, head shops, mm-hmm. but no, no weed. But um, it allows that to, and that complicates the whole process as well. And in states where they don't do that, where they don't allow uh, municipalities to discriminate, uh, there's so much more small business involvement. Uh, Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, those are basically the two states that I know of that don't allow local municipalities to opt out of cannabis. And they have, you know, they're growing at much faster. Oklahoma is huge already, but New Mexico is new, but it's it's growing really rapidly. Um, uh, so those are, you know, those are big things because, you know, uh, even in California, like 70% of municipalities opted out of legal weed, even in California. Um, and, and it happens all over. In New York, it was like 63% opted out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 I mean, I guess it's coming down a little, but it's most of the people are, most of these uh, cities are opting out. And this, the cities that opt in, a lot of them are there to also take their piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, to operate in our city, you have to get the city license also. Um, and you have to follow these specific regulations here. And we're only allowing one business in our entire city. So like, if it's not, you know, if you don't get the license, that's it, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so much against it, you know, uh, you're so up against so much starting any small business, um, but there's so much more with cannabis. It's a totally unique situation. Yeah, it is putting the squeeze on the market and making it, which ultimately impacts consumers. I also feel like listening to you talk a little bit about this is reminding me of what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation, which is your experience in the criminal legal system and how so many people on an annual basis, uh, perhaps as much as 20,000 per year in Pennsylvania are arrested for possession. Um, And that depending upon how the laws are written, folks who might know some things about cannabis um, could end up being squeezed out of the market if they don't have capital um, or if there's a law on on criminal records that keeps people Mm -hmm. out. I mean, there there are all kinds of ways that the thumbs get put on the scale in favor of big companies, which then lead to, you know, downstream effects, um, particularly that impact consumers. So much. There's so much that happens because like there's so many unintended consequences. It's like, you know, if you look at a state like Oklahoma, like I was talking about before, you know, they have pretty lax regulations and it, it allows for the business to grow huge, huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, the criticism a lot is that because those regulations are lax, there's a lot of black market activity going on where but really, the black market activity in California says the same thing. There's so much black market activity. Uh, 
And, and Oklahoma is the same thing where there's tons of black market activity. But the reason there's tons of black market activity in Oklahoma and in California is because there's states around them where it's not legal. All that right. black market weed in California isn't going to Californians. It's going yeah. to states where it's illegal. And all that black market weed in Oklahoma is not going to Oklahomans. It's going to Texans, which is right there. You know what I mean? Like that whole southeastern area is being can be supplied because those it's those those surrounding states problem mm-hmm. really they're the one because they're not legal and don't have a legal market they are making these states where it is legal putting them at risk really i mean because that's um now people are gonna there's there's um a reason to start an illegal growth right. <laughs> because there's so many uh, illegal customers still. Well, and I don't know the the data on Pennsylvania and where dispensaries are. Maybe you know, but I can imagine, like I'm here in South Central PA, right outside of Harrisburg, and there are mm. numerous dispensaries here in, in, in our area. And so, but if I lived in Northern Pennsylvania, if I lived somewhere, you know, North of State College, getting up toward the New York border, I could imagine it being a cannabis desert and you would have a legacy market because- if if municipalities have the power to um, keep businesses out, um, it would be easy to imagine be seeing hundreds of miles or, or going hundreds of miles across northern Pennsylvania without being able to buy legal weed. The other, yeah, and the other thing about northern Pennsylvania, <clears throat> if you're close enough to the border, you can just go right into New York, True. try your weed, come home which is what people would be doing in Pennsylvania if New Jersey had any good weed at any reasonable price <laughs> in their legal market. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, I would drive over the border and get weed if it was good and if it was uh, or if it was affordable. It's right. neither of those things right, right. now. Um, and I think, you know, not, there's a lot of, obviously New Jersey is like um, the kings of, red tape but there's a lot of red tape in the new jersey market but um but one of the big things um about new jersey that makes it hard to open up is that there's like no affordable real estate in this Mm -hmm. whole state of new jersey whereas in pennsylvania you know um i could see people setting up their grow operations in something berg pennsylvania like that northern pennsylvania area where you don't you know, someplace I never heard of where it's cheap, you know what I mean? Where it's cheap to buy land and mm-hmm. that's where they'll, it's, New York is, has the advantage of that too, because it has upstate New York. I mean, a lot of places can be growing up there where real estate is cheap and, you know, selling it in the New York city market, which is amazing. You know, um, that's really what could be happening in PA too, is that, you know, if you're growing it out in these spots where there, you know, there's a workforce that needs, be working and supplying it to the big cities where the popular and the, the rest of the state, state too but the big population centers which is a huge market for a state you know rhode island has a really great market but the entire population of rhode island is like half of pencil half of philadelphia right um you know like uh so like it, it you know they have a great market it's a great place to visit but if you're setting up there you're trapped you know in Rhode Island, you're limiting your customer base so much, right. um, at least until those 
border walls come down and you know stuff just starts shipping across the country yeah i'll have to fact check myself and go back and see uh what the medical marijuana businesses are in northern pennsylvania if there are any because they're i don't probably <laughs> they're probably are around you know anywhere the population centers are they are for sure because like i've been to like Reading and seen them around and like mm-hmm. you know scranton area has some and, but yeah. yeah there's probably places i'm sure <laughs> where there's like nothing really close yeah and you know it'd be difficult to drive you can't grow your own cannabis here um in nevada they had a rule where like you could grow your own cannabis if you were more than 25 miles away from a dispensary huh uh, um, which is funny yeah um i want to ask you about your cartoons um so this mm-hmm. fascinates me because as a comms person and advocate i'm always thinking about how to explain our issues to folks in ways that are accessible uh, i work with a lot of smart people who can write thousands and thousands of words about civil liberties uh, and my comms colleagues and i then have to figure out how to present those ideas in ways that our audiences can understand so what was your inspiration for cartooning about cannabis? These are nonfiction cartoons about what's happening with cannabis policy and stories related to cannabis. Uh, it, it's not stone Charlie Brown. So why, why did you start doing this? Um, uh, I did it. I started doing it. Like I said uh, earlier, I was radicalized by the Pennsylvania medical cannabis program. And I was like, okay, well, why is it, so bad here like what's going on and the first thing we notice is that there's only six companies or something at the time selling weed Mm -hmm. uh, which means the market's not good um and then i started digging deeper and digging deeper and then i was like i'd be like reading about this i'm like did you know that like this company only you know it runs in all these states where it's all there's only like no competition basically like and i started learning about this stuff and i'd be like typing it on Twitter and just being like, are you seeing this? You know, mm-hmm. and people would be like, no, it was hard to explain really. Um, people were like, what are you talking about? Like just smoke the weed. Like, um, <laughs> but it was like, I was getting so worked up every morning about it that I just was like, it, it's a way for me to process the information myself in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I tell it to myself in the form of a comic and kind of like get my thoughts straight about it. Um, but I like get this like immense satisfaction of like by like um, exposing all these different things because it's like I feel like what we're getting here is like a front row seat at like American style corruption. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it, um, we're we're used to the concept of like there being like two soda brands and like whatever. Like we don't even care. It's not something we think about because it's that type of soda war thing and the growth of Coca Cola and Pepsi happened a long time ago. Like we don't even care mm-hmm. and um, or know about it or understand it. It's so far beyond our comprehension at this point. Like Coca Cola is a global brand. Like, um, but with cannabis you're getting to see it like from the ground up, like they're starting, this is the first day this law was happened, you know, and, and there's tons of missteps and um, all kinds of people with all kinds of agendas influencing all kinds of parts of the market and the laws in, in mostly bad ways. Um, <laughs> there's grifters and there's 
you know, all different kinds of weird grips. Um, there's the anti-cannabis grifters and like, there's these, uh, you know, one of the most humorous things I got to see, I think, in cannabis was, um, uh, uh, what's that guy that wrote the, um, uh, it was an anti-cannabis book called Tell Your Children. Mm, okay. Alex Berenson, right? <laughs> this guy, Alex Berenson, cannabis, he was like, he basically rewrote um, uh, that old movie from the 20s. Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness. We mm-hmm. put for a 2016 audience or whatever that book came out. And it was the same shit regurgitated over and over again. Um, and it was so silly. And even and, and I actually, uh, when my book came out about cannabis, I did a comic for the New York Times. And they objected to some of the wording in it. Um, and where I was like, cannabis is now widely accepted as a therapeutic, uh, substance, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, what about this guy, Alex Berenson's book that says it's not therapeutic? Like, maybe we should reword this. And I was like, that guy is, that guy's a quack, dude. Like, this is what we're really, the New York Times is still using reefer madness to, to t- give the message out. Um, yeah. and also then after... I felt vindicated because afterwards, um, first of all, COVID happens and Alex Berenson becomes the most famous anti-COVID, anti-science COVID dude. <laughs> um, and then uh, he found out about my, I, I like had talked about him on Twitter a little bit and he found out, found my tweets and found out about my, about my book. And, uh, and he was like, Oh, ha, 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 ha. my enemies are so stupid. They make comic books. Ha, 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 ha. It's just like so silly. Um, was he twisting his mustache? While yeah, yeah. Saying? It was just like a <laughs> such comical thing. And then, you know, months later, I see him as like the top anti you know, anti masker and all that whole thing, anti science mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you know, but that also, that experience was like, well, you know, I can't, we can't, I don't see anybody in the media actually covering this issue seriously. Mm. Like every single, it's just, it's, it's the same thing I see in comics all the time where it's like, Hey, did you know that like comics aren't just for kids anymore? And like, this has been going on for the entire like 20 years of my career. Like it's always has the stigma surrounding it that it's just Mm -hmm. like, this is a medium for children, blah, 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 immature people. Cannabis kind of has the same thing where it's like, this is a uh, silly thing for silly people, not us, not, you know, something that serious people could ever uh, use or care about. So a lot of the articles reflect that, you know, it's a lot of very silly puns, you know, yeah. your plans all went up and swim. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of things like that. So, you know, I, I really felt that, this was something that I had to do like, or that it was a pull in the, the media market or something where, you know, there's really nobody in, in major media like at all. And very few people in even cannabis and small cannabis, because it's like this activist kind of position. Um, a lot of cannabis is, is, has gotten, you know, people think, I think a lot about cannabis, uh, in the in the 70s where like everyone was an activist and everybody said legalize it man you know all that stuff and now there's a lot of people 
in cannabis and, and, and involved in cannabis and influential in cannabis that like don't have your best interests in mind at all. Mm. You know, um, they want it to be a certain way. They're just there to make the most money out of it. You know, you see, it, I, I wouldn't even be talking about it if I didn't see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like the, the majority of people are like that. <laughs> and, um, and so like, I, I just felt like people would like to see something that was like more ser- taking it more seriously the comics audience my readers uh, i think and comics readers have come on this journey with me they're willing to learn about cannabis legalization you know even if they're not into weed because they're fans of box brown or whatever but um (laughs) but um you know i think for cannabis people sometimes it's kind of they're like what even is this like i've never seen anything like this you know (laughs) and and the um, comic strip people like my syndicate my syndicate also uh, syndicates like Popeye and like other like newspaper strips so like when the strip runs on their website the comments are really funny because those people really are like what is this this is not (laughs) funny where's the joke like the this people who the think, you know, comic. right. They, uh, they love Hagar the Horrible. And yes, they can't, they exactly. can't figure They can't understand your strip. They don't understand it at all. But thankfully, like my syndicate, my editors at the syndicate, oh, like they get it. Like they understand the importance of it, really. They were like really great champions for me at first, when I first started. And I was like, maybe I'll just send it to this one editor. I'm like, I don't know who's going to run this or whatever, but they, you know, it's been slow and steady with them, but they editorially have given me a lot of freedom and recognize that, that this is kind of like a novel, a new thing that could be important. Yeah. Well, and I, um, first became aware of your, uh, your cartooning, your comic legalization nation, because you did one about our mutual friend, Chris Goldstein and how Chris was explaining something to a state Senator and basically just hopped on the phone and broke it all down for him. Um, (laughs) So that was a good one. Um, But just curious, uh, any particular favorites of yours uh, that you wanted to highlight? I I have another one in mind, but I wanted to give you the chance Um, first. Uh, you know, I think one not that long ago talking about the Kirillov um, um, Roman Abramovich connection mm-hmm. was um, I, I got a good response. I feel like from the audience, and I felt like I was in kind of a unique position to write a comic about this because I had just I illustrated a book that was a biography of Vladimir Putin. And it was written by like a Putin expert that is a um, Russia expert and advisor to presidents and things like that. Like he wanted to make a comic and I illustrated it. So I got to have this one-on-one interactions a lot with this Putin expert. So I got to know a little bit about how these things worked from that perspective. And, um, and so doing that, I was like, wow, this is, I'm really pulling my Russia knowledge into this thing was like, Mm -hmm. And I think people don't really understand the, the the only thing about that that I think people don't really get is that the when you say oligarch in Russia, you're not just talking about like a rich person in Russia. It refers to like a specific group of people that 
basically stole all of the public goods from the Russian people at the end of communism, which is not that many people. It's like a handful of people. And then right. one of them is this guy, Ruben Abramovich. So it's basically like this guy and all the other Russian oligarchs that in this regard are like, they stole the whole country from, from Russia. Like that's, yeah. that's how they got so wealthy. So it's not the same as just like, you know, the way people call uh, Bill Gates an oligarch or something like that. Like it's something else. Um, and that's why that connection between that guy and purely the biggest can legal cannabis company in the world by market share uh, is a big deal. And like it not, it's not just like, Oh, some rich Russian dude funded them. It's this guy, <laughs> like one of the, it would, it's like one of Putin's capos or something. If, we, if we're talking about like the mob. Right. It's like Polly Walnuts. <laughs> right. Right. Um, the one I wanted to point out was the one that you did about the, and this crosses a variety of issues that ACLU works on, which is the gentleman that was killed by the state police. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. And when he was run over by a bulldozer, um, the story, as I understand it, is that couple of guys were growing a few plants in a state park. Um, the law enforcement became aware of this. And in the breathless pursuit of a guy growing a few plants uh, led to his death because they tried to clear the land with um, a bulldozer. And he was there. When it was a it. guy that was, uh, he had like an issue with his leg. Like he had, a, he had like a limp or a mm. cane or something. And uh, he was hot you know, they were there tending their plants and the cops showed up and they so they like hid in the brush and stuff mm -hmm. and they just kept bringing out the cops more people more equipment they had a helicopter everything looking for this guy in the brush and finally they like commandeered a bulldozer and to drive through the brush and ran the guy over mm -hmm. with the bulldozer um this is over like three plants like and, yeah. and this was after cannabis, uh, they had medical cannabis in Pennsylvania as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there was another, uh, a more recent one too, not where the guy died, but they, uh, a guy got busted in Western PA for having a grow tent in his basement. Um, and uh, he ended up getting charged with, because it was in his, because they found a kid's toy in his basement, they, charged them with uh, the felony of growing cannabis, but also the felony of committing a felony in front of a child. So his kids got taken away and stuff. And um, this is like, in, it was like last year, I think when this happened. So we're talking about like 2022 where X of States allow you to grow cannabis in your house. Um, there's still people getting sent away for getting sent away and at big expense you know losing custody of your children that's mm -hmm. a huge deal breaking up a family like that that's enormous that it's like you know you're put your you're not just harming the um the person who committed the offense you're, you're harming the whole family the children everybody yeah. way more than the plant in the basement ever harmed the children i'm sure yeah. Well, and these two stories speak to the thing that we beat the drum on all the time, which is we have to get marijuana out of the criminal legal system. Um, we, we can talk 
for days about what a legal market should look like. But to me, and I, I say this probably every year when we do this episode for 420, um, getting rid of criminalization and and, and removing uh, cannabis from the criminal legal system has to be priority number one for for the re- these two stories and there are countless stories like that right and I think that those those two things don't have to be the same law it does not have to be you could pass legalization decriminalization where you stop arresting anybody mm-hmm. and then take all the time you want to develop whatever legal market you want and Mm -hmm. no one's being arrested anymore there's that gun is not to the people's heads while they're negotiating the uh weed law the the sales laws all of a sudden it's because that's like irrelevant to people getting arrested that whole thing where um which is a huge problem where you know huge corporations are taking over the whole markets and blah 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 they're the ones that are actually using the arrests of 30,000 Pennsylvanians or whatever it is to push through you know all these horrible things that benefit them and harm uh, consumers and small businesses and if you just took that out of the equation where you're like oh there's no arrests no one's getting arrested right then you can have you can negotiate a deal on on the same footing. Yeah, and we, they uh, did that in Vermont, and and Vermont's rollout of legal cannabis has been very good, I think. Uh, we talked earlier about your book, Cannabis: The Illegalization of Weed in America, and you talked a little bit about the history uh, of prohibition. Is there anything about that history that you think? informs the move to legalization today. I and mean, we you talked a little bit about the racial impact. Are there other things about that? When you were working on that book, did you learn things? Is there anything in particular that you think is helpful knowledge for us now? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the what we talk about now a lot with um, social equity and social justice reforms, um, like the people forget about that stuff a, a lot, you know, because over the excitement of being able to buy weed legally and stuff, you know, that type of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. you forget about the expungements. And because I think if you know the history, you're looking at legalization, not just as like this party, but you're, you're writing a 90 year wrong. It was always wrong. Mm-hmm. There was never any point where anyone was acting in good faith to protect anyone. It was always about arresting people and, and you know, oppressing people. Um, and so when you think about it from that perspective, like, how could you ever uh, tarnish the process by which it becomes legal? Like, it is such a great injustice that it, it, it is owed to all these people that died in prison over cannabis over the last mm-hmm. 90 years and all of the people whose lives have been impacted Gregory Longenecker this guy who got who's got a felony are just two of thousands hundreds of thousands of people over the course of a, a century um, whose lives were destroyed upended um, over over this cannabis plant and so when we talk about legalization it has to be it's it's a it's writing are wrong it's not an opportunity for growth it's not a it's not how you're going to solve your tax burden 
you are <laughs> fixing, you know, you're fixing a right. You're, you're making a historical step to fix a, a century long wrong. It's wrong, you know? Um, yeah. And so, but it's become, it ha, you know, it's gone so far from that first Prop 215 law you know, which was for basically there for medical, for AIDS patients, really. It, it's really has, it's so tied to the AIDS movement. Mm -hmm. um, and it started about, it was about compassion, compassion for AIDS patients who are dying. Um, and it's become, what's become is, is such a farce and, and silly and like um, the, the, you know, the concept of medical cannabis has been so bastardized and and all of this um it's a shame but like i said it's very common in like in like every single sector every part of the united states and so getting to see it from a like a grand eye view like from the beginning is like a unique perspective well, brian you've been very generous with your time where can listeners go to see your work uh you can check me out on my social media um my Twitter is box Brown. And so is my Instagram. I run my comic there every Tuesday on both of those sites. Uh, it also runs on comicskingdom.com and greenstate.com. And if you're in Tulsa, it runs in the print edition of the Tulsa weekly. Um, so check it out there. And uh, also check out my Patreon, which helps keep the lights on a little bit over here. <laughs> All right, Brian, thanks so much. I really appreciate the conversation and, and everything you. you offer. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again to Brian Brown for the conversation and his insights. You can find Brian's work online at his website, boxbrown.com, and on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at boxbrown. That's B-O-X-B-R-O-W-N. By the way, I did fact-check myself about the locations of Pennsylvania's medical marijuana dispensaries. According to weedmaps.com, the northernmost storefront dispensary is in Brookville in Jefferson County. That brings episode 79 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Natalie Montero. Our opening theme is by Moody Finn, and our closing theme is by Elliot. Both are courtesy of bensound.com. The acting executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Claire Landau. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. <laughs>